I heard a guy say years ago, every time I think about running long distances, I lay down and take a nap till uh, that idea goes out my mind. Then I get up and go on. Well, you just saw a brief intro as to what is required if you're going to be a long distance runner. Notice some of the things that he talked about. You've got to have patience and you've got to have persistence. I thought it was interesting when he said if you take a few days off, your body and your mind automatically takes time off. And so it doesn't feel like it's got to engage the process like it did. He talked about how difficult it is, and he talked about warming up to it gradually. And he also said that often when you're running those long distances and working up to it, taking a little bit each day, you're going to feel like you're not accomplishing anything initially. Sounds like my basketball game. That you just feel like you're not accomplishing anything initially. Last week we saw in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, Run with patience. The race that is set before you, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If we're going to run the race of faith, and we've all been called by the Lord to run that race, we don't have the option of trying to sleep through this one. We've got to run this race that He has set before us. Not that we've set before ourselves, but that the Lord has set before us. If we're going to do that, then we've got to run with persistence, and we've got to run with patience. Now, we saw... In Hebrews chapter 11, that the writer of Hebrews seeks to encourage and challenge the recipients of this book by saying, let's go back and look at the Old Testament heroes of the faith, how they ran the race. And he talks about Abraham, he talks about Moses, and talks about some of those great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. In the 12th chapter, what he's going to do is he's moving here to say, okay, we looked at these folks who've gone before us, now I want you to look at Jesus. And I want you to see how Jesus ran the race and how he's running the race. And so I want his example to challenge you and encourage you. Now, why was it so important to these folks in receiving the book of Hebrews do this? Well, the book of Hebrews is so named because it was the recipient of a group of Hebrews. We believe that it was the recipient of Jewish Christians that were living in Italy at the time. And they were undergoing tremendous persecution for the faith. They were being ostracized by their relatives. They were being ostracized and persecuted by the Roman government. And their temptation was to give up the faith with all the pressure that they had on them. Just to give it up and walk away and say, why bother with this anymore? And so he writes here to encourage them. Look at the Old Testament. Look at your forefathers. Look at Moses and Abraham. And now I want you to look at the Lord Jesus. So let's join what he's seeking to encourage them in, because what he's trying to say to them in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11, is that there are times when faith is no fun. There are times when faith is no fun, when walking with Jesus and serving Jesus and being faithful to Jesus is no fun. Now, we like to think that and preach and sing that many grows sweeter as the days go by. Sometimes it seems to grow more difficult as the days go by. And we encounter things we thought we'd never encounter. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 3, and how do we deal with it when faith is no front? Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, consider him who endured from, sil- from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. As you're just passing out, you say, I don't want to keep on in this, in this challenge. In your struggle against sin... 
You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, what he's saying here is, hey, you guys have had opposition, and you've encountered difficulty, but you haven't been killed. No one, your blood hasn't been shed yet. So you haven't gotten quite that far in the persecution. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Notice two, quick, two important verbs there. The Lord disciplines the one He loves Verb number one, and chastises every son whom he receives, loving and receiving, or evidence of being his child. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, so the proof of belonging to him is discipline. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He, that is the Lord, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. And there's another key phrase there. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. You say an amen to that. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Key word there again, to those who have been trained by it. Now my sermon outline is contained in your Rocky Mount Connection. And I invite you to follow along with us as we move through this passage of Scripture together. Now, you'll notice as we move through here that you kept seeing the word discipline over and over and over again. When you and I are disciplined by God, it is absolutely no fun at all. I remember when my mother used to discipline me, and she used to say, Son, this is going to hurt me, and this is hurting me much more than it is you. And I was this close on several occasions to say, Well, if that's the case, why don't we change positions? And I just, you know, I want to let, not, let you not have all this pain and hurt that you say you're going through. And I used to think, There's no way this could be hurting uh, you as much as it is hurting me. Now, the idea of discipline in our culture and the way that we tend to use the word usually connotes punishment. And so we'll talk about time out and spankings and allowances being cut. And so most of us have negative connotations when it comes to discipline. The Greek word that's used here and the concept of that day was not getting a spanking. It was not being put in time out. It was not having your allowance cut, etc. It was a different concept. And so a lot of times when we talk about God disciplining us, we tend to understand it exclusively in terms of punishment. That God's ticked off with us and He's coming after us with His heavenly paddle because He's so ticked off with us and He just wants to just jump in there and put us over His lap and give us a good beating, etc., etc., and some of the preaching that I grew up was like, with was like, you know, God's going to give you the beat and he's going to enjoy every minute of it, even if you don't. Well, that's not the idea of the concept here. Discipline, as it was used in that day, and the term that's being used here, speaks of several things. First of all, it speaks of teaching. It is the idea that when God disciplines us, he teaches us. Second, it is correction. 
He is correcting us in order to achieve behavior that is positive. It is providing guidance. He's trying to put in front of us, if you will, a GPS system for life. And he's trying to show us this is how you need to live. This is how you need to get to the destiny and the call that I have for your life. It requires training. In fact, one of the words we're going to look at today was used. It's, it's a word I can't pronounce it very well in Greek, but it's a word from which we get gymnasium from. And it was the idea of going to the gym and working out. So it involves training. And God never disciplines at us out of his wrath. In other words, God does not look at us and say, Man, I am mad with you, and I just want to let you have it, and I'm going to just you know, beat the tire out of you and love every minute of it, etc. And for everything you did wrong, I'm going to get joy out of beating you right back into doing what's right. God does not look at it like way. And I want to stress that because a lot of times when we go through discipline, what we think is that God's mad with us, and that out of his anger, he's coming at us and letting us have it. And if you grew up in a home situation where you had a parent who physically or somebody in your life who physically abused you in the name of discipline, it's very easy to think, well, man, that's the way God is. And if, if you know, that parent had a big paddle, I mean, God must have a whip and a half that he can use on me, uh, et cetera, et cetera. That, again, that is not the concept at all. It is the idea, rather, of coming and to, to our lives and saying, I want to correct you. I want to put your life in the right direction. I want to guide you. And I'm going to have to do some corrective action and work in your life to try to get you turned in the direction that you need to go in, but God's saying that in a loving way. He's not looking at you and saying, man, I can't wait to beat the tar out of you, and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. So please, if you've got that kind of think, thinking about how God disciplines us, do the best you can to push that stuff aside, because that's an erroneous idea about how God disciplines. The first thing he says to us in verses 5 through 9 is that discipline, when God disciplines us, it is proof that we are family. It is his way of saying to us, you belong to me. Notice how in these words, beginning with verse 5, it says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as what? As sons. My son. Notice the possessive personal pronoun there. My son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son he receives. He uses that personal family language over and over again that says, I belong. Now, I don't know about you, but when my parents used to discipline me, particularly when my mother did this, it was the only time that I ever heard my middle name. I became convinced that the only reason I had a middle name was to be, to, is her way of letting me know you were about to get it. That was when I had my middle name. My middle name is Edwards with the S. They thought I was plural when I was born. And uh, so they always, she always said, David Edward Slayton. And when I heard the Edwards, I thought, uh-oh, things ain't going to be nice. Whatever's coming after that. You know, it was always David, but it always the David Edwards. And for some reason, it got real formal when I got disciplined. It was Slayton. That was the only time my, my last name was used with me when I was growing up. And when the Edwards and the Slayton came in there, I knew I was in trouble. But I always knew, though, too, that I really belonged in the family. Of course, sometimes I didn't want to belong in the family uh, when that happened. I wanted to go belong in somebody else's family at that point. But it was a way of saying, hey, we, you're a part of the family. And, and this is not a fun time to be part of the family, but it's an important time to be part of the family. And as I grew up and I matured, I began to look back and appreciate what my mother did and what my dad did. 
And what he's saying here is that when God moves into our lives and he disciplines us, it is his way of saying, you belong to me and I love you and I'm not going to let you just run off and do whatever you want to do because you're not going to mature that way. You're not going to grow that way. You're going to end up hurting yourself if I don't step into your life and if I don't discipline you. Now notice the warnings that he gives. Verse 5. He says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. In other words, if God starts disciplining you, don't blow it off. Don't ignore it. God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? But don't blow it off. What happens when we blow off our parents when they're disciplining us? We're just asking for what? More discipline. And so if I blow God off, God's going to be like, okay, here we go with round two. You're going to get round three, round four, round five until you wake up and listen to me and what I'm trying to get through to you. So the best thing to do when God begins to discipline is say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me? Verse 6, he says he loves us. That's why he's doing it. It says he receives us. So in the process of being disciplined, he is loving me. And in the process of disciplining us, he is receiving us. He's taking us to himself. One of the things that Helen and I always tried to do with our son, we were raising him, is that after a session of discipline, we would have a session of hugging or some kind of way to affirm love for him to sort of balance the thing out. And what God is saying is that when he disciplines us, he's receiving us. He's trying to pull us closer to himself in the process of discipline. Now, God's discipline has a purpose. Notice verse 10. It says that he disciplines us for our good. He disciplines us for our good. First purpose that God has in disciplining us is for our good. Even though it may not feel like it, the first purpose is for our good. It's to get our attention and then to teach us. And it's to take us to a higher place. When God disciplines us, He's saying, this is where you are right now in your walk with me and in your walk in life. I want to take you higher. I want to take you to the next level. But I've got to teach you. I've got to correct you. I've got to get your attention. You've got to learn some more from me to get to the next level. Now, let me tell you something about God. God is never going to be satisfied to leave you at the level you're at right now. I don't care how satisfied we get at any level, God's never satisfied that we stay there. I mean, how many times have you and I said to the Lord, Lord, I am comfortable where I am. Can I just go into cruise control here for a while? And have you noticed that the Lord never pays any attention to us when we say we want to go into cruise control? He says, no, you're going to the next level. So when God begins to discipline us and he will never ask our permission and usually doesn't even let us know what's coming, he says it's time to go to the next level. Now, I need you to think back with me to when you were a preschooler, okay? When you were a preschooler, think about how your parents related to you as a preschooler. They probably did just about everything for you. They cooked your meals. They put the food in front of you. They said, eat. They told you when to go to bed, when to get up. They made up your bed for you. Uh, I mean, you name it. They picked your clothes out that you were going to wear, et cetera, et cetera. They did everything for you when you were a preschooler. As you begin to grow and you begin to mature, what did they do? They began to back off. They began to tell you what you needed to do. They didn't make the bed up for you anymore. They told you 
to make your own bed up. Some of you guys got married so that your wife would go back to making up the bed for you in the morning so that you know, you'd go back to mom and what she used to do. They begin to tell you to put your own clothes on. We can tell that. Um, you know, they, they begin to lay things out for you as to let you take responsibility, etc. How about problems when they came along? They used to solve all your problems for you. Now as you mature and grow, they start telling you you got to mature. Solve some of your own problems. I remember when we had a sort of a, uh, I guess you call it one of those crucial times when we were raising our son. He was, I think, a junior in high school, and he was having problems at school with one of his teachers. And uh, he came to me, and, and he was telling me what was going on. And I said, son, I can go to the school, and I can have a confrontation with the teacher, and I can deal with this thing. I said, but you're going to be in college in about two years, and I cannot go to the university and sit down with a college professor and have a confrontation with him. You've got to start working some of these things out for yourself. And if you want me, after you've tried, if you can't get it resolved, I'll go up to the school. But I want you to see if you can work through this thing for yourself because I can't always fight your battles for you. I can't solve all your problems for you. You've got to learn to do that yourself. And so he went back to school, met with the teacher, and to his credit, he got it worked through. Now, follow what I'm about to say. A lot of us want God to treat us like we are perpetual preschoolers. We want God to run around our lives and solve all of our problems and make life all better for us all the time. We want Him to make up the bed for us, to cook dinner and put it on the table for us, to take care of every problem and every obstacle. In fact, we sometimes think that maturity in the Christian life means that we just find new and creative ways for God to teach, treat us like a preschooler. And we like that because if God treats me like a preschooler, I don't ever have to mature and grow up. God just does everything for me. Well, that's wonderful. Well, let's go sing a praise chorus. God's going to do it all for me. Hallelujah. The problem is God doesn't work that way because God is not interested in us staying a perpetual preschooler. He wants us to grow up. And what He was doing with these Christians... That he wrote Hebrews 2 as he's saying, God's saying to you, it's time to grow up. I'm not going to take all the problems out of your life. I'm not going to solve all the, remove all the obstacles. I'm not going to make your bed up for you. It's going to be tough. It's going to be rough at times. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to put yourself into it. I will work with you through the problem, but I'm not necessarily going to take the problem out for you. That is maturing. Notice where he wants to take us in this maturing. Verse 10, so that we may share His holiness. One thing I've noticed is that when we get in preschool mode with God, the one thing we don't want to deal with with God is His holiness. Preschooler, for the preschool mentality does not want to deal with the holiness of God. The holiness of God requires of us that we start growing up and maturing. And he says that his will, his desire for us is that we would share in his holiness. People ask me all the time, Pastor, how can I know the will of God? Let me show you what the will of God is. The will of God is for you to share in the holiness of God. And if you don't learn to share in the holiness of God, you can pretty much take everything else and throw it out the window because it's not going to happen. He wants us to share in his holiness. So this is what most of us do with the holiness of God. We either ignore it. We admire it from a distance or we run from it. I won't deal with the holiness of God. What in the world is the holiness of God going to mean? 
I remember when I was growing up as a kid, I've shared with this before, the church we went to referred to this Holy Spirit as the Holy Ghost. I didn't know who the Holy Ghost was, but I didn't want to meet him. It sounded like he's going to be spooky or something. We don't want to deal with the holiness of God. What is the holiness of God to begin with? First of all, the holiness of God is God's absolute purity. God's holiness speaks of his absolute total purity. It speaks next of his, and I'm going to give you a word here, otherness. And what I mean by otherness is this. God is wholly other than the things of this world and this earth. He is wholly other than the things of this earth. In other words, he's not touched and affected by sin. He is not limited like we have limitations in this earth. He is not affected in the same way that we are by the things of this earth and this world. He is wholly other in His power, in His glory, in His love, etc. He is totally other than what we are. He knows how to show mercy when our mercy long time ago gave out. He knows how to keep on loving long after our love would have given out. He knows how to stay pure long after the temptation has come with everything that it has. If you don't want to see that, see that in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is totally other than what we are. Absolute purity. It is the most basic aspect of who God is. If you go to the book of Revelation and you see the worship that's going on there, what are the angels saying to God over and over again? Holy, holy, holy. They don't say love, 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 mercy, 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 judgment, judgment, judgment. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are compelled to express the very deepest aspect of who He is. His holiness means that He is a lover of justice and what is right. His holiness means that he has wrath against evil. He is compelled to respond against evil. His mercy, his holiness is expressed in his mercy to those who are poor and who are needy. Now, how in the world do we share in that? How do we share in that? Because that's what he says he wants us to do. He wants us, he's disciplining us so I can share in his holiness. So how do I share in his holiness? Obedience. Submission to His will. Obedience and submission to His will. The avoidance of evil. The more I share in His holiness, the more I'm going to avoid evil. The more I'm going to internally even know what the evil is to avoid. Loyalty to Jesus. Loyalty to Jesus. So I'm submitting to Him, I am obedient to Him, I am loyal to Him, I am walking away from evil. Now how do I get at that sharing? How do I get at that sharing? I'm going to share this with you because this is how I grew up. I grew up with a big rule book. And being a good Christian was you had this big long list, and every day I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't do the other. We used to say you don't smoke, you don't chew, you don't go with the girls who do. And so you, you had that big list that you followed of all the things that you didn't do. And then you had another list, and list number two was all the stuff you were supposed to do. And so a good day was when I could say I didn't do all this crud, and I did all this stuff. But that's not really what the Bible defines as holiness. I mean, atheists can do that. What is this holiness that he says he wants us to... How do we share in it? 
worship. Worship is when I look away to Jesus, which is what Hebrews chapter 12, first verse, looking unto Jesus, looking away to Jesus, and then I respond, react to what I am seeing and experiencing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how I begin to share in His holiness. Now let me tell you one mistake we tend to make with worship. We tend to define worship exclusively as what goes on in a room like this on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. What goes on in a room like this at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is a catalyst for worship for the whole week. This is not the start and the end of worship. This is just to get us kick-started into worshiping Jesus all week long. And worship can take all kinds of expressions. You see, worship is not about the form that it takes. It's about the one that I am focusing on. So I can worship Him on an athletic court or feel as easy as I can worship Him in a church sanctuary. I can worship Him out there doing acts of service in His name as much as I can worship Him in singing to Him, etc., etc. So please don't limit your understanding of worship to I've got to be in a church on a Sunday morning singing songs because that is a catalyst for worship, but that's not the end and the beginning of worship. Worship is when I encounter Jesus and I look at Him and I respond to who He is. And that's when I begin to share in His holiness. Now, notice what he says, we must all live beyond the moment of discipline. Verse 11, all discipline seems painful for the moment. All discipline seems painful for the moment. We are not going to enjoy it when God disciplines us. That's when faith is no fun. But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Hang in there, stay with it, because God's doing something in your life. Gloria Gaither, uh, the Gaither vocal band, Bill Gaither, some of y'all are familiar with him, said these words, and I wanna, I'm going to read this to you twice. Don't, you don't have any notes, but you might want to write it down. God is in the interruptions and seldom in my plans. God is in the interruptions and seldom in my plans. Often, God's discipline comes in the interruptions of life. God is in the interruptions, but He is seldom in my plans. We tend to plan things out, and then we get interruptions. And what do we do with interruptions? We freak out. Because the plans aren't happening. But God is so often in the interruptions. You see, what God's doing when he disciplines us is he's developing us into a godly person. God doesn't want you just to be a good person. That's nice and wonderful. He wants you to be a godly person. What is a godly person? It is someone who is responsive to him. Responsive to Christ. Responsive to the lordship of Jesus, responsive to his ways and living in his ways. It, it, it works out in my life and how I treat other people, right, just and fair. Now, there's two aspects of God's discipline that we don't like. Aspect number one is pain. Discipline involves pain, and we don't like pain. 
Second, what God says to us in discipline. God says two things to us in discipline that so often we despise. Number one, God says no. How many of us enjoy hearing the word no? And so when God says no, we tend to get ticked off with God. Well, you don't love me anymore. You don't care about me anymore because you said no. You're supposed to say yes. Treat me like a little kid and say yes, yes, yes. And God says no. And then God says to us, you got to change. Oh, we don't like that one either. You got to change your thinking. You got to change your behavior. You got to change your perspective. We don't like the pain. We don't like hearing no. And we don't like hearing you've got to change. But that is essential to becoming a godly person who is responsive to the Lord Jesus and what he's saying and doing in our lives. And notice what it says here, what that discipline produces. It says it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The word fruit there is the idea of pruning. Why do you prune a tree so that it will produce even more? God says, you're producing great for me. And we say hallelujah, and God says, so I'm going to prune you so you can produce even more. That's why some of you will say, and all of us go through times when we say this, God, I was loving you, I was serving you, I was being effective for you, and then you let this happen to me. Then you took me through this season. Why did you do this, God? I was being so effective for you. And the Lord says, because I want you to be even more effective for me, but I have to prune you in order for it to happen. You remember the Apostle Paul? He kept talking about that thorn in the flesh. God kept using that thorn to prune him so that he could be more effective. The peaceable fruit of righteousness, the word peace there. What God's trying to do in discipline is produce in us His peace, which means wholeness, completeness, quietness of our soul. So let Him do it. Folks, you and I will have no peace without character. We will have no peace without character development. And the way He so often produces character in us is by discipline. By pruning. God blesses you. God uses you. And what we tend to do? Swell it with pride. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look what's happening around me. And God says, I want to use you even greater. But if I let you swell up even more in pride, you're going to fall into sin just like that. So I've got to step into your life. And I've got to prune you back. Bring humility to your life. So I can use you. He talks about that Peaceable fruit of, of what? Of righteousness, that's of character. Now listen to what David said in Psalm 119 about how he experienced this. Psalm 119, verse 67, and this verse 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Why does he keep his word? Because God had to discipline him. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I'll keep your word. Verse 71, Psalm 119. It is good for me that I was afflicted or that I was disciplined, that I might learn your statutes. How did he learn the statutes of the Lord? God had to afflict him. God had to discipline him. But he said that was good for me. Now, how does that happen? 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching. And we say, Amen. For reproof. I don't know about that, Lord. For correction. i got to go to the bathroom. And for training in righteousness. 
You see, we love to talk about the Bible being the Word of God. And we love to talk about how it's great for teaching. But then when it says it's for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, uh, we ain't too much into that. But the Word of God operates in our lives to teach us, to confront us, to correct us, and to train us for righteousness. And the concept in verse 11 of Hebrews about, it says that the word is used to train us. Again, comes from a gym concept. It was the idea of going to the gym just like we do now. And what do you do when you go into training? You have to go to the gym and you have to work out. You have to sweat. It hurts. It often is no fun. But that's how you build the muscle tissue. That's how you get good at it. That's how you train at it. And what God does with the Word of God, the function of the Word of God in our lives is for the Word of God to teach us, for it to reprove us, for it to correct us, and for us to be trained in righteousness or in character. Now, folks, this is what we've got to be careful about with the Bible. If I come to the Bible and I just want the Bible to comfort me and make me feel good and get me through the latest crisis and that's the only way I want the Word of God to function in my life, we're going to get really frustrated with the Bible after a while. Because we're going to run into all those passages where we're getting corrected and we're getting reproved and God's trying to train us. So that what's the temptation? I'm just going to set the Bible aside until I have to deal with it again. I have found over the years that people love for you to read the 23rd Psalm. Rarely do I get requests to read the Ten Commandments. We love to talk about the passages that comfort us. We don't too much want the passages that challenge us and train us and correct us. But if we don't let the Bible have its full ministry in our lives, then God cannot do in us what He wants to do, what He desires to do. We're not going to grow up. And then we'll start talking about how the Bible is boring and we don't get anything out of the Bible. <laughs> it's not very long from the Bible is convicting me to the Bible is boring me. Because the reason I don't like the Bible, I say the Bible is boring because it's getting on my case and I don't want it to get on my case and challenge me. Let the Bible be the Bible. Let God do through His Word what He wants to do through His Word, and it's going to be painful at times, but He is growing us and changing us to become like the Lord Jesus. He's disciplining us to pull us out of that preschool mentality into maturity so He can use us. May we pray. Father, when we are disciplined by You and our faith is no fun, Lord, remind us that you love us and the season of discipline we're going through is to mature us and to grow us and to bring us closer to you so that, Lord, we can take what you have shown us and what you've taught us and what you've done in us and share that with someone else. Lord, we confess that we really do enjoy our immaturity. And we want you to run around our lives and solve all of our problems for us all the time. And you don't do that, and we get mad with you. Sometimes we don't want to serve you, we don't want to talk with you, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Because you're not making it right on our schedule. Lord, help us to just ask you, God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? 
And how do I need to grow up? And thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough and loving us to the place that you are not willing for us to stay where we are. That you want us to grow up and you are committed to us maturing. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today or listening through any of the means through which we share this worship service and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to say to him right now, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you. And I can take all that I am and give it to all that you are. If you say, well, I just feel too sinful to do that. He already took all of your sin on the cross, so it is not going to freak him out. He loves you, and he will take you and receive you. As we sing and worship him now, may we look to the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can run this race that he set before us.